Welcome to Mission Critical, Sale Leaseback Podcast by Ascension, the world's number one sale leaseback show. We share the latest in sale leaseback advice from the best in the game to keep you at the cutting edge of the hottest emerging practices in corporate real estate. I'm your host, Tom Johnson. We talk to sale leaseback. Hello, everybody. This is Mission Critical, a podcast by Ascension. I'm Tom Johnson. Thank you for joining us today. Today, I'm here with Yanni Alexiou. Uh, Yanni, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Great. So you are a principal and operating partner at Broadtree Partners, and that's an operationally focused lower middle market private equity firm that seeks to acquire middle market companies in the one to 10 million EBITDA range, uh, where you guys can install your leadership and turn the company into something better than it is and and really help grow and improve operations. So prior to Broadtree, you were a senior research associate on the number one ranked equity research retail term at Moth and Nathanson. And then I think for me, what resonates with me, you are a former D1 tennis player and, and national champion in Romania. So that's very cool. We need to get out there and play especially since you're in prime tennis area. and prime spot sale, that's right. And actually, I think I left out the most important part. You got your MBA from Harvard. (laughs) Thank you, yes. And your BA from another Ivy League school, which that is something that when I told Chelsea, you know, the managing director of our firm, she was pumped to have you on because she was like another kick-ass woman with, you know, double Ivy League diplomas. She's like... Yanni rocks. Let's get her on the podcast and have fun. So welcome again. No, thank you. And I'm honored to be here. And you're you're just making me a blush here. I'm, I'm trying to still make friends. So <laughs> very cool. So why don't we start it off with you giving us a great description of who Broadtree Partners are, what you guys do, and then we'll get more granular with, you know, your role within the firm. Yeah, of course. So we like to not even think ourselves as a PE shop. We like to think to say that, look, we help small and medium sized businesses and business owners achieve the growth that they have and the potential, but just a little bit faster and with fewer headaches, right? So when we buy a company, we only do majority acquisitions, but we don't come in and then just add the company to a portfolio and visit it once a quarter and cut the budget in half and fire half the people. And I feel it sadly, I have to say this because that's a little bit of the reputation that our industry gets. So when we buy a company, that's where the operator centric model comes in. We have one of the operating partners. So it would be me or one of my colleagues. I would stop working for Broadtree and become a full-time employee of the company and really be part of the leadership team. And that would be my full-time job. So that's what I would be living and breathing for a few years. Like that makes sense. And I, you know, looking at the team on your website, I think that's exactly what I saw as well as you see the, the founders in the leadership group. And then it had 10 to 15 CEOs, which are the operational partners of all the various companies that y'all have invested in. And then I saw yourself as well as I think five other operational partners that I, I guess candidly are waiting for the next opportunity to jump in and take the reins on a company and shoot for the moon, right? I know. Yeah, we're we're kind of the squad on the bench right now waiting, but also actively searching out there. So I feel that, you know, you make your own luck. So you kind of have to work for it. So yeah, and so let's dive into that. But I do know that you guys just closed the money raising part on a big fund. I think it's your Broadtree Partners Fund 4. Correct. So yeah. What I want to say is you're not gonna be sitting on the bench very long, right? Like, 
you guys are ready to go as long as the opportunity presents itself, right? Yeah, exactly. And we have to be careful, right? And and mindful and really diligence the opportunities that we invest in. But yes, we closed fund four. We already deployed the first three funds, which were great uh, across 12 of our portfolios. This is actually our largest fund yet. So it's bigger than the first three combined, which I think is also just attests to the quality of investments that we made in the past. And yeah, we should have a runway for eight to 10 more acquisitions out of this fund for. I was going to say it is a testament to how well the company has performed in the past because y'all closed a fund in what we think is about to be a recession. It just closed, I think, I think the September. So where a lot of people are pulling back and just sitting in a cash position and waiting and seeing what's going to happen, you guys actually have people giving you money. We do. And I think we saw a lot of the investors that were invested in all three funds or some that came in a little bit later, some new investors as well. But I think it just shows a track record of the former CEOs, the people that were kind of in my seat before. So I do have big shoes to fill going in. So if I'm a, and look, we get this all the time in our side of the business because we're brokers and we're trying to sell the real estate component for, you know, maybe an investment or a business that a private equity firm's involved in, or maybe it's just a family founder owned company that manufactured with something and we want to sell the real estate. And they're constantly asking us, well, why should we work with Ascension? And we've got all our great reasons, starting with Chelsea Mandel. But why would somebody work with these businesses? They're thinking of selling. Somebody's thinking of retiring or, you know, they don't want their employees to lose their jobs. They want to pass on the legacy that they built. Why do they choose Broadtree versus maybe the 10 other firms that are lined up to try to buy the business? What distinguishes you guys? Yeah. So I think, and I'm so glad you asked this because... If you look kind of at the the companies that we bought so far, the sellers over time tend to fall into two different categories. The first one is kind of of people that say, look, I've grown this business from zero to where it is today, but now it's a real enterprise and a bigger company that where as a CEO doing HR and financials and all the admin work takes up 150% of my time. And Typically, that's not really the most fun part of the business other than, you know, maybe for people like me. And in those cases, they just need an extra pair of hands and to kind of alleviate some of the pain and the sellers stay on board in a very specific capacity. And that could be either in a product development role or sales or whatever actually brings them joy and what they're good at, right? Because if you're having fun, that's where you're going to do the best. That's right? still so, really, truly like a partnership. And they're leveraging the relationship that now they have with you to free up their time to do maybe the things they enjoy or just overall grow the company because of the expertise that you guys bring to the table. Exactly. And then we work side by side. And it's also, it's a matter of fit. And we emphasize this a lot during our diligence process where especially now post-COVID, we push for in-person meetings. And we want to say, and and I tell everyone that I talk to, it's like, look, let's just meet in person, spend a few days together, see if there's a good fit. And we might just not see eye to eye and it's fine. We can part as friends. And it's just so much better to do this from the beginning than realize six months in that, oh, actually you're not compatible and you're thinking about growth one way and I'm thinking the complete opposite way. And then that's just a waste of time for everyone. It's a waste of Mm -hmm. resources. It creates so much friction and it's just ultimately bad for the culture and the employees. 
So in some of the cases, as I said, the owners and the sellers stay on board in a very specific capacity. And we come in with just kind of a full tank of gas and ready to go and and plus the capital that we bring to the table and the resources that Broadtree has. And then there's kind of the second category of people that say, look, I've I've done this for 20, 30, 40 years. I'm just ready to retire, spend more time with my family, but I still want my people to be taken care of. And that's where we make for really good transition partners. And we spend a lot of time with a leadership team. You know, there's some form of transition period of three to six months. And most of the times, actually, the sellers keep equity in the business. So roll some portion. And we like to see that, right? We One, we want them to be part of the upside. And what we've seen is that kind of the value of that equity at the second exit is just so much more valuable than the first check that we write. And we also see this as them believing in the business and its growth. So yeah, that's kind of what we bring in. So I'm curious, is there like a typical hold period that you guys have when you're in these businesses? I mean, I guess it's really case by case, right? What's kind of the goal that Broadtree's going in with this? Because you're trying to reach, you know, expectations of your investors too, right? Yeah. So the nice thing about Broadtree is that we don't have a vintage in our fund. So yes, we model out five years of returns, the the kind of typical private equity hold period, but we're pretty flexible. So, and to be specific, actually an example of that, we had our first exit earlier this year. It was a company that we held for a year and a half or less than that. And it obviously, we never planned to exit a year and a half in. It's just that the opportunity made sense for everyone, including the sellers, the original sellers that still had equity. Some of them were in the business involved day to day, and that just made sense. We had another company where the deal closed in the middle of COVID. Obviously, access to capital and especially debt was a little bit tough. So the terms of the debt that we took on that business were not the most favorable. Since we bought the company, the company grew significantly. And then we were able to recapitalize, take a new form of debt on, pay down the old one and actually issue a dividend that paid back, I would say, over 90% of the equity investors. So that obviously created... One, just relief the business. It created really nice returns for our investors, but also just gave that particular company the opportunity to grow and think about acquisitions and how to invest in the business further. So, A little bit on the investment side with you all leading a fund. It, there's a lot of things that sound very similar to what I do in apartment buildings and you know the partnership that I have in the 100 plus units that we have in Southern California, where we've got investors, we sometimes take on some unfavorable financing because of the economic climate, but we're able to add our value. So obviously a little bit more simplistic in apartment buildings. A few people move out, we slap on a couple of uh, quartz countertops and our value is added. But then, you know, look, the NOI is up and, or in your case, the EBIT is up and you're able to get more favorable debt because number one, rates have gone down and the businesses become more valuable. It's very interesting. So let me use another apartment brokerage thing that I used to do, but then also as a focus for me is now more in an apartment investor. So I'm not brokering anymore is, okay, the economy seems to be having some problems. We may be entering in a recession, rates are up. So in a lot of cases, there's more of a flight to quality. 
which maybe means with some opportunity, there may not be as much upside, but you're also hedging against a little bit of that downside risk because of just risks inherent in the economy right now. So how does Broadtree look at what's going on in the economy? Is there more of a flight to quality with businesses right now? Or is it really, hey, no, we need certain returns. So we really always have to have that value add play in there no matter what. Yeah. So, I mean, look, we're obviously a lot more prudent now. And kind of one of the first things that we look at is how did, if this business was around 12 years ago, how did it do in the previous recession? How cyclical is the business? What's the demand looking out there? And typically, I think in kind of the private equity spectrum, we're some of the more conservative ones. We we don't really lever our companies up too much. So that's been, that's kind of playing to our advantage right now. I personally like to, I'm probably one of the least alarmist people out there. And maybe that comes from my growing up on a trading floor. And I feel that there's so much noise out in the market. And I think just kind of looking at the bigger picture of things, it's just, yes, this is a recession. I don't think it's going to be as big as the last one. And I think it's going to be more of a growth recession. And there's going to be only part of the population that will be significantly affected. But if you look at kind of consumer demand, overall retail sales, employment numbers, those are still looking pretty healthy. That being said, it's not going to be a growth year going. It's just going to be kind of a steady, I think, 0% growth next year. And then inflation pressures are obviously what is hurting everyone right now. Yeah, but I, you know, I, I I agree with you. And it's just interesting. I mean, y'all have so many, when you're looking at these businesses, there's so many factors to look into and variables as opposed to my, and I know it is a very simplistic apartment investments. You know, last week I did a podcast with a private equity group and they were really tied in on the QSR space, the restaurant space. And it was interesting because then they were also tied in on a very small percentage to yeah, they had kind of a venture capital fund, which invested in a lot of technology, apps, software that was then applicable to the restaurant space. So I thought it was very smart because they were able to tie in some of their investments that if one succeeded, it kind of helped all the other stuff they do. You guys seem to be tied into a lot more different industries. I think there's healthcare. I think there's manufacturing. And I think there's like government or businesses or other yeah. types of businesses. So I'd love to hear kind of the run through some of the various businesses that you guys are involved in overall, and then maybe where you slide into your specialization and or your passion per se. Yeah, of course. So we are correct, but it's just, we have some focus on healthcare, a couple of GovCon businesses, more recently, more in the marketing space and an SEO reseller. But I, and I think this kind of comes, that's the beauty of this operator model that we come in. And if you look at our roster, we all have such different backgrounds. We have engineers, former startup founders, people that operated businesses. Very few, actually, I think there's only two of us that come from finance or consulting and I'm one of them and I wanted to get out of finance, which is why I went to business school. And then famous last words. Now I, uh, <laughs> my first job out of business school is at a PE shop, but we really are operators at heart. And what gets me out of bed is working with a team and rolling up my sleeves and being there 
in the middle of the action, right? It's kind of being back on court and fighting for every point. And that's kind of how we approach our businesses. So that being said, because of our kind of diverse backgrounds and just different experience, that's why we're looking broadly at industry. So we're looking at what is the best fit for each individual operating partner? So, for example, I, I went to a conference earlier this year, met with this company, and I said, look, this could be a great opportunity. It's just not the right fit for me. I introduced one of my colleagues to them. Now we're actually seriously considering it, going through diligence. So that might actually play out. And that also just speaks to the strength of our team. What I've personally been focusing on is, again, just kind of playing to your strengths and just the industries that I have experience in. I look for industries where there's a lot of disruption happening. I've been focused on kind of the retail space and inventory management and those types of like software that, that you can implement there. Also in the digital marketing, I've spent a lot of time there. I, I used to cover the big media and internet players in the world and really honing in on at this micro cap and this micro cap space. And especially there's so much change happening in the industry from a privacy standpoint, from Chrome sunsetting third-party cookies, that it's really exciting for us. And I think it will create a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, the digital marketing is interesting. So my wife she used to do digital ad sales for Viacom. And then after she got her MBA, she went to NBC Universal mm -hmm. and you know worked on a marketing team. And she stopped working there five years ago. And I just talked to her about all the stuff that we are doing at Ascension, just the way that we're capturing the buyers, the way that we're capturing any of the clients, the social media, which was really starting to only gain traction, you know, five, six, seven years ago. And it's almost like a completely different industry just in that five years. I mean, there's almost like very, you know, half of what she's doing, what she did then, she may not even do now. Right. And there's so much change. As you said, the landscape is so quickly changing from, I think, five years ago, the, the newest, hottest thing was LinkedIn direct messaging and mail. Now nobody even opens those anymore, right? So you need to figure out, even a year ago, I think Facebook was still dominating the space, but with the iOS changes, we saw them last night report earnings and they're hurting. And just there's always just kind of also the change in demographic and where the new generation is moving to new platforms. Like first it was Snapchat, then TikTok. Who knows? And we can have this podcast in two, three years, and there's probably a new one that's dominating the space and where the ad dollars are shifting. Yeah. And I think we recognize that. That's why we made a big shift. When Mike and Chelsea partnered to form Ascension, I think we saw the, the opportunity on the marketing side, but that's, you know, I'm going to give props to Sam Jacobs who set this up. That's why we hired you, Sam, to do this for us. So very cool. So let's jump into why I'm sitting here is we're a commercial brokerage firm. We specialize in sale leasebacks. We advise family founder owned companies. We advise private equity firms, bankers, on the real estate component, the mission critical real estate that is necessary to their operations. So Broadtree is a private equity firm that's going in and buying these businesses. There is often real estate associated with the business. And mm -hmm. how does the real estate component factor into your guys' overall investment strategy? 
Yeah, so we're one of the private equity groups that doesn't shy away from buying the real estate. And, you know, the returns in real estate are quite different from the ones and just a different way of looking at it than from a traditional PE shop. But we're not afraid of doing that. And I think especially for us, we see the sale leasebacks as an opportunity to unlock a tremendous amount of capital, right? That can be reinvested in the business. And I think especially in this micro cap space, it's really an advantage because in a generational transfer that they talked about earlier, so much of the overall wealth of the family is just locked up in that real estate. And we understand that, right? And for sale leasebacks, we approach them two ways, right? If we deal with with a company that owns its real estate. If we were to do a sale leaseback simultaneous to the close, a transaction, that we can see this as that transaction really helping us fund the deal or bridge a gap with a business owner. You know, in most cases, the sellers have a number in their head and they're usually right, right? Like mm-hmm. it takes a little bit of back and forth, but they know what their business is worth. So if it takes a little bit more for us to put in money on the table, we would really seriously consider buying the business as well. So let's say if we agree that the overall number should be, I don't know, 20 million for the business plus the real estate, and then find a real estate partner like Ascension that says, hey, look, you can get 4 million for the property. And there's someone we can trust and know that timing wise, it can work out well, then all of a sudden, you know, your entry multiple goes down from five times to four times, right? Because you're actually only raising and paying 16 million for that business. And if you're financing it on top of that, in many cases, it can be even less, right? And I know we've seen that with a lot of the family founder owned businesses where they want to grow their operations. And we're like, hey, you do this simultaneous. It's almost like they're coming out of pocket, nothing. Yeah, exactly. So we see that. And then similarly, if we do a sales back later on, just because maybe timing or whatever happened, we didn't do it in the beginning. We see it as just an opportunity for us to either delever or dividend out or build a new plant, reinvest in the business, hire more people, whatever it is to, to really help the business continue to grow. So yeah, we really like these opportunities and that's why we're here, I guess. And I think, and I think yeah, I mean, to, to that second point, you know, sometimes the real estate is not worth as much now as it will be worth in a year or two once you get that business really burning and churning, right? Sometimes it does make sense to hold it, get the business, the site level financials, if they got multiple sites, you know, get those up. And then again, then it can be a lot more fruitful. So very cool. How do you all deal with and look, I think this is this is common with on the business side and the real estate side, and then more so curiosity. So somebody's like really emotionally tied to the real estate or really emotionally tied to the business, but how do you get them over that hump? Yeah, so um, I think it's, I mean, look, this, most of the sellers are become investors in the business themselves. And most of the time they're very reasonable people, which is why we, you know, we spend so much time together in the in the diligence process to make sure that we are getting over that hump. But I think, look, there are places where let's say we would own the property and we don't see it making sense for us to do a sale lease back. And that's usually where you'd see more of the emotional attachment if it's mm-hmm. state-of-the-art facility or something that would really disrupt the business if we had to move. So we wouldn't consider it. And I think that's where the emotional attachment would come in. But I think 
most of it and the battle that we kind of have to win is at the sale of the business. Because I think the three biggest conscious life decisions that happen in someone's life are when they get married, when they have kids, and when they sell their business, right? So we've already dealt with a lot of that emotional roller coaster during the initial transaction. So usually the real estate part is a much smaller bump for us and a more rational conversation than the first one. Yeah, that makes sense. And then you also just highlighted the fact that I've only got one major life thing to look ahead to. In my life, I've already married, I already have kids. So now I guess for me, it's retirement, right? I don't have the business. Maybe I'll I'll get a business, but (laughs) that's a little depressing, but no, I'm joking. So let's wrap up with like, what are you most excited about? I guess, you know, moving forward through the rest of this year and in 2023, both personally and hey, maybe it's like, I'm just excited that I'm going on a vacation soon, or maybe it's, I'm excited about something in the industry. What are you most personally or professionally looking forward to in the next, you know, 12 to 15 months? Yeah, I mean, for the next, I think, 12 months, it's going to be really interesting, right? We talked about this recession, I think, that creates a lot of opportunity for us to come in and really help businesses, partner with them and say, look, you may be exhausted. This is not the the easiest time. And I didn't want to, maybe it sounded a little cavalier earlier when I talked about the recession and what's happening. It's not going to be easy for a lot of business owners, but that's what I'm really excited about. I think this could be a really good opportunity for us to find someone that would want to partner with us and with me and that we can really create a good plan working together. Personally, honestly, I'm just hoping for a little less global warming and a little more snow. I'm a pretty big skier. So yeah, pretty excited about this winter and the seasons are changing and hoping to get out on the slopes a few times. So I have a few trips in mind that I want to do this year, but uh, we'll see if they actually happen. Yeah, I love skiing too. So to your first point, that actually refreshed my recollection when I had that brain fart earlier. I agree with you. I think when the economy is in flux, or when there's uncertainty is when there's the biggest opportunity. So whether that means for new opportunities to buy new businesses, or maybe Broadtree's currently working with some businesses and it's like, wow, we can really get some market share here because I think some people are going to close down their doors, right? And so I, I would agree with them that. To your second point, I love skiing. And that's one of my regrets about moving away from LA is LA, there was a mountain that was Mount Baldy that was an hour and a half away from downtown LA. So you could go there very quickly if conditions were right. It was only five days out of the year or something like that. But I love to go to Tahoe or Mammoth or Park City, places like that. What's your favorite spot to ski? I mean, I try to make it out west as much as I can. I'm based in New York and we're, I think, a short flight away from Utah and and going to Salt Lake and then skiing Alta and Brighton and those ones. But also, you know, you can't say no to Colorado. It's just that lately the conditions have been a little tough, right? Going to Vail and some of those mountains, you need to kind of time it right, which it's, yeah. it's tough in our business, right? When you're trying to juggle meetings and actually do work and do that. There's not much on the East Coast, right? You'd have to go, what, to Vermont or something like that? But it's just not very exciting. It's like you're down the mountain in, what, 
10 minutes, five minutes? I mean, look, I grew up skiing in Romania, which is very icy and very rocky. So I'm not a big snob. I think I always uh-huh. tell people that I moved from Eastern Europe where there are the toughest conditions. And I came to the East Coast and I said, look, you know what? Vermont is great. And there's some awesome mountains here. If you go to Stowe and the further up north you go, the more snow you're going to get and the bigger mountains. And then I finally discovered the West Coast and I completely fell in love. But Amazing. Um, yeah. I'll ski anywhere. It just brings me so much joy. And I always, I don't know why, but although tennis was my sport and it's what I made a small career out of, it's it's skiing that really- I think it's just the freedom of being outdoors and in nature. And it's, you know, you go to a place like Colorado where, I mean, it's beautiful. I can't argue with that, especially when you're in the city and I was in LA all the time you're just in this concrete jungle and then to get out there and kind of be away from everything it's it's tough to beat opry ski go down have my beer have my drinks out i mean what else can you ask for right i love mountains specifically where you have no phone service that's my excuse (laughs) there you go very cool well yanni thanks for being with us i really appreciate it enjoyed our conversation and uh, look forward to getting a chance to meet you soon as well thanks guys Yeah, thanks for having me and the Ascension team and looking forward to the next one and good luck with everything. Absolutely. Thank you. Mission Critical, a sale leaseback podcast by Ascension. To find out more about Ascension and how we can help you achieve a higher standard of real estate advisory, visit www.higherascension.com. And then make sure to search for Mission Critical in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. We talk to Sally Spag. Yeah, you ready?